This is a Handshake Agency podcast. Welcome back to the Rewind podcast. I'm your host, Steve Bell. So far, we've travelled back in time with Silverchair, Billy Bragg and the Avalanches, as well as our most recent delve into Darrell Braithwaite's The Horses, And this time around, we're going back 25 years to 1996 to investigate how a precociously talented young trio from Brisbane, almost a side project at the outset, rose from their previous lives in the underground and barnstormed into the commercial realms on a major label without sacrificing either their fierce DIY aesthetic or subversive tendencies. The band is Regurgitator. The album is their debut two playing, which came out on Warner Music Australia then WEA Australia, on the 6th of May 1996. This is the story, and it's an absolute cracker. Now, for the first time on Rewind, I'm going to throw in a bit of a language and concept warning before we get into it. There are some swears bandied around, nothing gratuitous, it's mainly song lyrics and titles, and there's also some drug references and adult concepts, nothing too bad, but enough for me to give you a heads up before we kick off. Before we dive into the birth of Regurgitator and their journey to two-playing, we need for context to have a quick look at the Brisbane of the early to mid-90s, coincidentally the precise time I landed in the city from Melbourne. By the time two-playing landed in 96, Brisbane, or more correctly the Valley, was undergoing a pop-cultural renaissance, with bands like Powderfinger, Custard and Screamfeeder dominating on the national stage but in Brisbane merely forming the tip of the iceberg of a vibrant and diverse music scene with great bands abundant and plenty of places open for them to ply their trade. But it hadn't always been this way. For decades, Brisbane and Queensland had been considered by its southern counterparts to be basically a cultural backwater, far more interested in development and chasing the tourism dollar than embracing the arts, and this had everything to do with the oppressive regime of Sir Jobielke Peterson, the hillbilly dictator. The longest-serving Premier in Queensland history, under his country party, later the National Party, rule, Brisbane was subjected to a conservative regime whose skewed take on the concepts of law and order, combined with a complete lack of accountability, had transformed Brisbane into a virtual police state. The reign of terror lasted decades, and this was not the place to be if you didn't mirror Bielke Peterson's rigidly conservative view of what society should look like. We're talking different race, different sexuality, different politics, different lifestyle, different religion. It could be anything. Bielke Peterson had been born in New Zealand, but was raised on a peanut farm near King Roy in country Queensland, where he taught Sunday school, and anything that didn't align with his skewed interpretation of a perfect society was weird and wrong and not to be tolerated. Fortunately, all things must pass. In late 1986, two literally brave journalists, Chris Masters from the ABC and Phil Dickey from the Courier-Mail, started the investigation into the rampant police and political corruption in Queensland that would quickly topple the Bielke Pedersen regime. Following the 1987 Fitzgerald inquiry, the Premier announced his retirement in 1988 and the next year Labor finally swept the Nationals from power in a 24-seat swing, at the time the worst ever defeat of a sitting government in the state's history. 
Now, why are you telling us all this, I since you start to wonder? Because this is how the story starts. Remember the valley I mentioned before? That's Fortitude Valley, the inner city suburb immediately northeast of the Brisbane CBD. For most of the 20th century, a thriving commercial centre, under Sir Joe, the area had fallen into disrepute and become virtually a red light district, with brothels and illegal casinos operating with impunity under the watchful eye of both police and government. After the Fitzgerald inquiry, however, all of this was gone, and the entire valley became an abandoned wasteland of cheap, cheap rent and quickly the local epicentre for both artists and musicians. Ben Eli, regurgitator's bassist, songwriter and sometimes singer, remembers vividly how that pendulum had started to swing in the right direction for once. I used to live in a share house on Coven Grove Road, the first house I lived in when I moved out of home and these wild hippie chicks moved in next door and they were a share house too. So we were a group of guys and these girls moved in and um, they were just wild wild girls and we ha- we used to throw parties and we had this party where we tore down the fence and made a bonfire in the backyard so we're like yeah it's just one we're just one big house and those girls had the foresight to go and um one day they came around for a cup of tea and they said oh we're going to start a club so our bands can play they were in a band called the creatures downstairs and we had a bunch of bands going in our house and they're like, oh, we got, we got the lease on this venue in the valley and we're going to start a club and all of our friends' bands are going to play there. And they called and they're like, what are you going to call it? And it's the zoo. So they, they started the zoo and at the time there wasn't really much like it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a collective. Uh, yeah, that was obviously C and Jock. But at the time there was it was just felt like... Uh, you know, as opposed to Melbourne and Sydney, Brisbane's so centralised where a lot of the music happened in the valley. Um, and, yeah, that that was a kind of... Everyone played in each other's bands, so everyone was in three or four bands with, like, different combinations of different people from around town and would meet up at places like the Zoo and play together. And, yeah, it was a good time in Brisbane, definitely. The zoo became a Brisbane institution and is still going strong to this day. I worked out once that I'd spent well over a year's worth of nights there, and that was many visits ago. And this is important, because under Bielke Peterson there was no stable venue infrastructure. If a pub or club started pulling crowds of bands, its licence would be revoked or the raids would start. They knocked down the beautiful Cloudland Dance Hall in 1987 to make apartments, It was National Trust listed, so they just did it at night under the cover of darkness. The scenes would move elsewhere and start again, but it was tough to be in a band back then, when you could get locked up or beaten for walking down the street with a guitar or having long hair or wearing a band shirt, pretty much anything. Thus began the talent exodus that would define Brisbane in the decades prior to the 90s. Going right back to guys like Billy Thorpe, Lobby Lloyd, Mick Hadley, even the Bee Gees, Brisbane never had a problem in spawning great musical talent. The problem was in keeping it. In the 70s, the Saints and the Go-Betweens, now two names virtually synonymous with Brisbane as our music scene's founding figures, couldn't wait to get out of the place when the opportunity arose. The riptides, the ups and downs, the screaming tribesmen all went south. The lineups of bands down south like the Hooter Gurus, Died Pretty and Beast Suburban were all littered with Brisbane musicians who'd seen no future in the city. 
But by the early 90s, this suddenly began to change. Local community radio stalwarts for Triple Z had been one of the sole shining lights during the Dark Joe years, a haven for alternative music, thought and speech. But they were to an extent preaching to the converted. So when Triple J went national, it was suddenly an avenue for Brisbane bands to be heard down south without having to get in the van or relocate permanently. The music industry was all located in Sydney and Melbourne, so away from prying industry eyes, Brisbane bands had no need to conform and tended to be quite unique and often strange. Two facets suddenly desirable when Nirvana's Nevermind opus kicked down the doors and blurred the lines between the mainstream and alternative worlds, as well as the new venues suddenly popping up and staying. Brisbane laid claim to the thriving Livid Festival with its agenda to shine a light on local music and art, the first such annual festival to be held within a capital city rather than in a far-flung paddock, as well as a thriving street press scene. As Ben and Regurgitator's long-time manager Paul Curtis recall, they were interviewed together for the podcast, you'll quickly pick up the difference, it was suddenly okay for successful Brisbane bands to stay in the city. Definitely. I don't know if, I think maybe that had to do with Triple J going national. I think maybe that was around that time, was it? No, I mean, my story maybe extends a little further back in you because I'm slightly older, but um, to me it really started in that kind of late 80s period uh, off the back of the whole kind of vampire lovers, etc. that was going around that then segued into that kind of um, funkyard period where I ended up working with the Dream Killers and you suddenly mm. saw this uh, shift, like particularly I, I figure it around Metropolis. Yeah. And that you, you, you had these local band bills like Dream Killers were playing probably once every six to eight weeks and getting about a thousand people. And at the same time, you had, I suppose, the start of Powderfinger, the Custard thing, the Bud thing, um, the Brasilia thing, which Martin ended up coming from, and the Pangaea thing were all kind of these local bills, maybe four, five, six, seven, eight bands sometimes pulling like a thousand plus people i think that's when you start to get that shift which was what year did triple j i think it was like 93 yeah so so triple j came after that but like that's when you started getting like record labels suddenly opening up like um shops in brisbane to sign stuff but that's when you started to see a real shift in that kind of hey let's we can stay here we don't need to go so I remember doing a show at the Orient and seeing Bud and talking to Jeremy, the singer of Bud, and he was like, oh, yeah, we just got signed to Waterfront. I was like, what? You're a band in Brisbane and you got signed to Waterfront? Like, And I went, oh, wow, you can stay here and be signed, which I thought was pretty – I remember going, oh, wow, that's unreal. Yeah. Yeah, we're prior to that. Everyone would just – the idea was that you had to go to Sydney mainly – occasionally Melbourne, but, like, that was where the epicentre was and where you had some chance of developing a career. But, yeah, that really did start to shift in that late 80s, early 90s. By the early 90s, it was completely... I mean, you had, like, what, Bums Magazine, which was late 80s. You had, yes. You had, like, a whole bunch of, like, little things going on. Um, and there was, like, a lot of... St- like, the Funkyard was in the city. Metropolis was in the city. I mean, Metropolis was an anomaly. It was, was. like, this underground 1,500-capacity venue in the middle of a bloody shopping centre. Like, we'd see lineups out through the shopping centre itself. Like, it was surreal. I don't even know how it managed to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was cool. It was a good time, though. I remember, I remember it being really healthy and fun and, 
Yeah, I've, I've spent 10 years living in Sydney and 10 years living in Melbourne. And I think way people do bands in Brisbane is really different to Sydney. I moved to Sydney and I met a dude who played drums. And I was, I was like, um, oh, man, do you want to, you know, we should have a jam. And he's like, oh, sorry, I don't jam. I just play in this one band. And all the other bands are like, oh, yeah, well, I just play in this band. And I was like, what are you talking about? You don't play in other bands? Are you guys crazy? And it's like they're in this monogamous marriage while in Queensland everyone's running around having key parties, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, in, in Melbourne I feel like it's more inclusive. Like, There's a lot more people playing in other people's bands, but it's very sceny and niche You know, you've got a certain type of style of music that exists in a, in a kind of uh, social net, social sort of scene. But if you don't fit into those groups, like a birthday party kind of style band or a jazz Afro band or whatever it is, then you'd kind of, it's really hard to get gigs if you sit outside of a community. But I feel in Brisbane, it's just like, it's just an all in. Everyone's just all in if you're a poppy band or a metal, like a lot of bands play together and a lot of bands play with each other and... Yeah, I think it's and it's a lot more centralized and accepting. And because of that, I feel like there's some pretty quirky, interesting people that come out of Brisbane because it's not tied to a certain sort of uh, style. So it's a very individual kind of form of expression with some Brisbane bands. Yeah. Things were changing and changing fast. And it was from this melting pot that Regurgitator was born. Ben, who we've met, was frontman at the time for local underground heroes Pangaea, who, as we've heard, was smashing it and pulling massive crowds. And Paul Curtis, a local visual artist, was managing both them and the equally popular punk metal outfit The Dream Killers, whose music he also released on his Velvet Urge Records imprint. Paul's current label, Valve, releases Regurgitator's music to this day, along with many other fine artists from all around the world. Here's Paul and Ben discussing their initial partnership. And then I knew Ben from the Huxley family days. Oh, that was my first just, Ben, yeah. And just being an uh, acid casual freak, ca- uh, casualty <laughs> freak, kind of hooked up with Ben. I don't know how, for some reason, we became friends. And then I... Because uh, I liked your artwork and I did artwork too. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what it was. <laughs> but I just remember I was managing the Dream Killers and somehow I fell into having a meeting with you guys about managing Pangaea and I was like, oh, man... I didn't even know how to manage one band, let alone two. But then I got involved with you again because the other guy you went with left you guys in debt. So I paid off your debts Yeah. to kind of – and then started working with you. He was an Elvis impersonator. He was really bizarro. Yeah. <laughs> he was a pretty strange dude. And then you came up to me on the street in um, Paddington at the Paddington yeah. Fair or whatever it was and said, oh, i got this new project or whatever. And I had this – I think you said something to me like, I had this vision that I have to work with you or something – Something oh. fucking weird. Maybe you. I don't know. That was, that was, was me taking weird. too much acid then. And, um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's yeah how that race started. So Paul's become manager of our vision, and conventional wisdom has it that Ben and Regurgitator's eventual frontman Quan Yeomans, then a member of local noise band Zurastia, met on an inner city Brisbane bus to get the Gurge story rolling. The full truth, as Ben reveals, is way more interesting. Well, it was just meeting Quan, really. Like Paul mentioned, the venue Boulder Lodge. And, um, you know, they would have kind of gigs on all week. And I think I just went down on a Wednesday or Thursday night. And I was there by myself and I went into the club and I saw Zoo Rastia were playing. 
and they were playing when I came in. I just saw Quan and he had these little tiny hot pants on and some women's top and yeah, this good, like they were a crazy band. I just remember looking at Quan and the way he played guitar and how he looked and just was really attracted to him. I thought, wow, man, that guy's a freak. He's like, he seemed really cool. And But I didn't meet him that night. And then um, I used to go to this hippie dude, Krishna, who lives up in the in the rainforest uh, out near Mapleton. He's still a good friend of mine. He's cool. And he's got a place called Arcadia. It's this kind of old hippie kind of place that his dad built in the 60s. He's got a big dome house and he used to throw these wild full moon parties where it had, it would collect all of the refuge from the property and make these big bonfires. And, you know, crazy gypsies would be dancing around howling around the fire and he had a sweat lodge and everyone's walking around naked and you jump in the dam and sit in the sweat lodge naked but he also had a stage he was a drummer and he had a stage he had no electricity but a generator he put in the forest and would run an extension lead to the stage and he just had a setup and everyone would just you know hippie jam (laughs) and then uh i think i think oh yeah i had some mushrooms and i was just starting to trip and then i picked up the bass and was playing and then the drummer I was playing because I always look at the drummer when I play bass and the drummer went away and then Quan came up and I was like oh my god I was looking at him going oh that's that dude from that crazy band and then he was playing drums and he's a really good drummer like he's really funky he doesn't play drums on many in any band but he's a really good drummer so you know any drummer that is good I just fall in love with I'm like you know, I went to find a bass player the other day. I don't know any bass players, but I know about 60 drummers. So we just really connected and we played, had a really good play, and then we kind of had enough of that. And Quan was drinking, and we, we got naked and jumped in the lake and then got in the sweat box and then we walked through the forest. Like, And then Quan was like getting the leaves and licking the leaves and rubbing them on his face and he's going they're so beautiful and I was when I was dripping but he wasn't I was going man this guy is far out he's really crazy and then and then I didn't see him again for months and then sorry this is a really long story but then this other friend of mine came around my house and was looking for some weed and I was like I don't have any weed and then she knew Quan. She was the singer from Zoo Rastia, and she said, "I know where we can get weed because Quan's mum's got weed. Let's walk up there." And I, go, I don't know where they live. She goes, "I know where they live." So we walk up the street. Fair enough. And we see Leanne. Then yeah, she's got heaps of weed. She gives us some weed, and I could, I got a bit stoned, and then I could hear this crazy guitars and drum sounds coming from the basement. And I was like, oh, Quan's home. And he went down. I was like, hey, man, do you remember me? You know, I saw your band and we jammed at the party. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, man. And then I said, oh, maybe we should have a play because I kind of say that to everyone I basically meet because I just love jamming with people. And he was like, yeah, cool, cool. And then he, he wanted to have a play. Um, and he, he was like, I want to play guitar. I want to sing. I was like, oh, okay, because you had just played guitar before. And I went, yeah, that's cool. So I can write and sing too. We didn't have a drummer. And then I was at Manhattan's, that venue you were talking about. I think it was just a disco night with just, I remember people on the dance floor. 
and it was really I remember being really crowded and dark and lights and stuff and seeing Martin Lee and you know Martin Lee's like you know smoking and drinking in the club as you did in the 90s you know and uh I was like, hey, man, what's going on? I haven't seen you for a while. And he said, oh, I'm good. But, you know, Brasilia's just broke up. You know, the band didn't work. And I'm looking for a new band. And I said, oh. And I just had this moment where it's like all the planets align. And I just got like goosebumps all over my body. And I went, man, you should come and play with me and Quan because, you know, you're a really good drummer and Quan's quite interesting. And I just... I got goosebumps remembering it because it was just like, oh, wow, this plan that's coming together could be really cool. Even though at the time we were just not taking it terribly seriously. But, um, yeah, and that's how that's how the band kind of got together. Yeah, And you just blew the, the myth of the bus story. <laughs> no, well, we, we did meet on the bus between all of that. Yeah, in cool. the middle of all that. that. <laughs> but that's just the big story. I mean, that it's a long story to... Yeah, but that's the full story. Quan also has distinct memories of that eventful first meeting with Ben before the Loose Alliance started coming together. Well, my first memory of, of Ben properly meeting him, um, I mean, I guess hanging out was at that party of, of one of his mates, um, his hippie mates up on, I think it was not Nimbin, but somewhere nearby Brisbane, up in the hills somewhere, this hippie guy had a hex hexagonal house or an octagonal house or something ridiculous and we were we met at a party there and i was completely wasted and he was quite wasted as usual and we had this god awful funk jam <laughs> in the funk in the jam room would have sounded terrible and then uh i think there was like a musical connection there it was probably the first musical connection and then the next memory i have of meeting him i know that we met on a bus briefly in brisbane but i was playing in a uh, punk fusion band called zoorastia at the time and we would often do um, support shows. I think we did a couple of support shows for Pangaea. And I don't think we met at those shows, but um, he knew of me and I knew of him. And um, my singer and him were hanging out quite a bit. I don't know if they had a fling or whatever, but they were, I think Vic knew my mom because she was playing in the band with me and she knew my mom had weed. And he was like, oh, let's go. I was looking for some weed. And Vic suggested that we go and they go and score some weed off my mother. And so he came around to my place with her and then heard me um, mucking around on my four track downstairs and popped his head in and uh, said, well, what you doing, man? And then we started talking about music and just, you know, maybe starting a band together at that point, I think. And it came together pretty quick from there, really, didn't it? Like it did. From the initial thought. It did. I mean, we were looking for a drummer who was kind of more uh, groove based than the drummers we were working with at the time, something a bit more simplistic. And um, Martin's name came up. Um, he was in a band called Brasilia, which were doing quite well at the time. Similar kind of level as Pangaea, I guess, maybe a bit under. And um, we just got together and jammed. I think possibly the first jam was under my mum's place in the basement. And then there were rehearsal spaces around the city that we um, we booked into. And I believe because of Martin's connection with Powderfinger, we went into their rehearsal space initially, which was above Galaxy Records, I think, on Ann Street in uh, Brisbane City. So they were the, some of the first rehearsals that we were doing before we uh, worked on our first couple of EPs with Magoo. We'll meet Magoo soon enough, but first let's meet Martin Lee. While Quan and Ben still play and make music as regurgitated all these years later, Martin would leave the band in late 1999 following their third album, Art, 
and he's speaking to Rewind from Mexico in one of his first interviews in 20 years. But these mentions of Martin driving many of the ideas and having the connections come thick and fast because even at his young age, he was already a veteran of the underground scene, having been playing in hardcore bands before he'd even reached his teens. Yeah, man, I was, I was into like punk rock, American punk rock, skateboards and all that sort of shit. So I've been doing it for a long time, man. And, um, and then when I met Ben and Quan, because I was back in Brisbane because my father was sick and I started a band called Brasilia. And ben was in Pangaea and shit. And, and then I left that band. I was going to go back to the U.S., and um, bumped into Bennett at a rock and roll show and, you know, just in a drunken conversation like, man, we should start a punk rock band, man. Not expecting anything to come of it, but he fucking called me the next morning, like at 8 o'clock in the morning <laughs> and said, man, that dude from Zerastia, that, that dude, let's go hang out with him and write some songs and um, went to his mother's house and fucking wrote three songs, man. And... Uh, Thought we'd do a gig and that'd be about it. And then all the record company, well, a couple of record companies came sniffing around and I said to the boys, we should do this. Fucking not for any big career plan or fucking property portfolio, but more for just fuck why not get something out of this because none of us, none of us really expected it to last, to be honest. Yeah, man. I don't know. It was just Brisbane was happening. And uh, as you well know, three of us from all different sort of bands and we got together and it just, I think the chemistry just worked, man. And we just, just took off, really. But we had no plan. It just sort of, it just fell into place. Like I was telling the guy the other day, like, there was no plan, man. It just, it just worked. Lightning in a bottle, my friend. Lightning in a bottle. That chemistry Martin is talking about manifested in a sound that was regurgitated his own. A fusion of funk, punk, metal, rock, hip-hop and pop that was unique and kind of weird, but innately accessible, a sound Quine agrees came together pretty organically. There was riffs that I'd been working on in my basement. There were ideas that Ben had. Um, he was playing in a very, very technical kind of band. We were all playing very technical kind of fusion um, punk metal music. And we wanted to, I think there was just a bunch of riffs that were left over that were a lot more simplistic and a lot more groove based. And we thought, let's go down that pathway and see where it takes us. So we just kind of got together and jammed on the simpler riffs that we had, you know, in our pockets. And um, some of the first ones were stuff like track one. and stuff like that and they were very just repetitive simple riffs that were they required a big kind of sound and a big kind of groove and um i had some lyrics and ben had some lyrics and they just kind of evolved like that i think it was a pretty exciting time in brisbane the live shows were going amazing like big crowds coming out and you guys started playing heaps like i remember seeing regurgitator at so many shows and you just were good from the start like it must have clicked pretty fast um i don't remember it like that but thank you for saying <laughs> that um i'm we we were very excited i mean i remember being very excited playing those shows and just being very fortunate to be in front of that many people very very quickly i knew a lot of bands that obviously had struggled for years to get anywhere close to that uh level of of um exposure and we got some really great I mean, Paul Curtis got us some really great um, 
headlining, uh, sorry, support shows at the very beginning. We were playing for in front of um, Primus crowds and uh, I think we did one for Beck. There was uh, John Spencer's Blues Explosion was amongst the early ones as well. So there was a lot of really big crowds with, you know, really cool bands. They were they were into really cool bands and we just happened to be thrown in front of them and they really latched onto the energy that we had, which was quite different. I, I think we were, had a very different sound to a lot of bands, especially a lot of the indie bands that were out at, at the time. Because it seems like there was a huge groundswell of very conservative bands around that time that were doing quite well, you know, and the kind of staple Australian acts that were around for a long time. And, and you know, even the indie bands had a particular kind of probably more um, indie guitar vibe about them. The UMIs, the, the um, I mean, I guess earlier than that, even the Rat Cats and stuff like that, they always had, had that particular indie kind of um, pop vibe about them. There was a lot of that around, but there wasn't a lot of what we were doing. I think it was quite a, we were a bit of an anomaly, I guess you could say. But we love what we did and we just threw everything at it. So I think that's why it kind of grabbed people quickly. Regurgitator really did grab people quickly to the point that what had started out in his impromptu side project was soon everybody's main focus. But as Ben and Paul recall, this rapid rise in profile soon made obvious that there are a few different ideas within the ranks as to how commercial a proposition the band should look to become. Here's Ben. Well, it was kind of a side project, but, you know... As a lot of people say about that time, you know, there was a lot of, there was either the kind of custard scene in Spring Hill, you know, Cow doing the pop, you know, Clag and uh, those, you were either kind of really pop or you were kind of techie, kind of punky metal stuff where it was kind of pretty involved. And, you know, I was listening to like a lot of Sonic Youth and, um, uh, what other kind of bands at the time? Or oh, hip hop as well, or just listening to kind of cool music that wasn't riffy and not technical. And then we kind of consciously wanted to play less notes and and do kind of hip hop and and just break it down and and make it a little bit more arty and less kind of tech techy. So it was kind of that was a conscious effort. And you know, Martin was right into hip hop. Quan was right into hip hop. Ice Cube and all that stuff and um, yeah it was kind of like a conscious decision to go that way yeah but the, the one thing that's always impressed me about working with these guys and I suppose I share a similar affinity in the sense is that and this is in relation to that question you just asked you know about like focus is that I don't think there was like any and again I could be wrong saying this but this is what I've always felt none of us had this kind of like direct intention that this was going to be something like it was driven by just spontaneity and instinct and just like an urge to do something, you know? And I mean, as you can probably see from that list of dates I gave you, it very quickly by default became a focus because, well, just booking fucking shows and tours, you know, and they just kept going. Like, as you saw, it was, pretty consistently touring and recording for at least the first four or five years, maybe, if I remember right. And then it suddenly backs off. But purely by that, it became a default focus. But 
I don't think anyone was like there were no business plans. There was no oh we're heading, oh, heading for there. Oh, I no, mean, I, I certainly wouldn't. didn't have any. I was no. Ma- you see, that's the funny thing is you're our manager, but you didn't have any business. But we did. I think that said, I think that we did. Especially here. Martin was very business minded, and he was kind of you know thought about it in a business way. And you know, there's a set of kid swings that are backs onto the valley behind Quan's mum's house where Quan was living in the basement. And I remember sitting on the swings with Quan just going, like in the midday sun, sitting there on a Tuesday or something, just going, it'd be really good to get off the dole. Like, if we can just get off the dole, it'd be great. Like, you know, so I think, you know, ambitions, that's, that's our ambitions were low. Ambition. Our ambitions yeah. were low, but it was still there that we were kind of like, oh, man, it'd be good to take this band a bit further. So I think we were pretty into it. Uh, and I was going to say, I always felt the only person who had that more kind of corporate, no, corporate's the wrong word, commercial intent was actually Martin. And, and like I always say when I do panels, I know this kind of sounds really weird, but it's like I'm not a businessman. I'm not motivated by business. Business is just a logistic to do stuff. Yeah, you didn't want us to get signed. No, because I was like, we could have done this independently. Yeah, but know, see, I was I, an independent-minded person. Sure, sure, but I was. I think I was definitely um, into the idea of signing to a major. The band would pretty quickly sign with Warner on a deal which gave them complete creative control, something which becomes integral to this story as we progress. But there had been interest from other labels as well, specifically Sony, with the major labels at the time in the midst of trawling through the alternative scene, looking for the new Nirvana in this post-Nevermind landscape. But coming from staunchly underground and DIY backgrounds, there were still some deep-seated reservations about aligning with a major label, as Paul and Ben recount. It set off a whole bunch of shit. Like, Mm. for a start, there was the problem of the shift suddenly from Pangaea to Regurgitator that Dave got really put out. Those guys got really put out by because they felt they'd been side-railed and that festered there for quite a long time and came out in different ways. And then Martin was, like, really... He really wanted it, probably, I felt, more than anyone. And he had a problem with me because he viewed me as a kind of more independent person who didn't really like record labels, etc. Didn't really like the, that kind of commercial record industry. And so that became like a source of uh, very irate tension. We'd have arguments. Stand, even when they were recording that EP I took down to Michael in Red Zeds, he kind of bowed me up in the car park area there and just like hammered me and was suggesting that I was driven by this motivation to monopolise the Brisbane music industry, which was like, well, no, that's not the intention. I'm just a motivated person who was doing stuff, you know, and so it was. It, there was a lot of tension that existed. And then Kwam seemed to be, like, really unsure about what he wanted to do. And, of course, you can tell that as he went on because the records themselves became a reaction and a critique thereof of the commercial music industry because it is kind of... It is kind of deflating it, when it becomes just all about money and outcome. And then I felt like Ben sat in the middle and was sort of like just keen to mm-hmm. do stuff. But I mean, Don't I could have been for, reading that wrong, yeah. reading that wrong, where I was more like seen as the DIY kind of agitator who somehow was also obsessed with control. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I am a control freak as well. I, I can't deny that. But um, yeah, it was a it was a complicated 
negotiation because then Sony got involved too and were interested and they were way more kind of uh, like commercially kind of driven. Juan was really in two heads about it, I think. I think it was, mm. it was there was a few months there where we were swaying to and fro. I think I, think I was kind of into it because I, I wanted to do it. And I know that, you know, financially it's probably not a great idea, but I kind of would like the idea of, of signing to a major. I wanted to I wanted to try and make it a big band. Um, Quan was kind of a bit here or there. Yeah, Martin was really into it. But I remember Paul wasn't um, as into it. I was like, we can do this DIY. I've kind of been doing it. Juan has no problem conceding that he was initially reluctant to hop in bed with a corporate entity. I was very hesitant. I recall signing the document that was filled with the word exploitation and exploited and exploiting. And I was... I. You know, a lot of the genesis of this band for me, lyrically and conceptually, had come from my experience of being overseas with my father in the in the uh, very early '90s when he took me to South America, and I was a 19-year-old, didn't really understand how the world worked until I went to Brazil and was at a a conference on environment, one of the first ones, I think it was in '91 or '92. And then I got to listen to some incredible political scientists like Vandana Shiva, all these third world. Um, resurgent type people and oh fuck man i was just so depressed and so like freaked out about it all and a lot of that informed the the early writing that i was doing and also the punk ethic that we had kind of just melded in with that that whole understanding of of global geopolitics and and understanding where we all really fitted in and um how kind of anxious that made me feel and how i brought that to the music as well and and lyrics Martin, on the other hand, was all in with Warner, feeling that they were sort of on the same page. I think Ben always wanted to do it. And um, the only person at the time that really was was Paul Curtis. And for whatever reason, that might be that thing. But uh, that put Paul and me at loggerheads because I was like, fuck, why not? And basically I came from a punk rock and all my all bands that I grew up, like the Huskadoos and the Replacements, they were all over at Warner Brothers and... And um, I thought, fuck, why not? And uh, I wasn't going to sign to Sony Records, which was totally corporate. But Warner's with Parisi over there, he was more like, a, he was a fucking punk rock dude, man. So I knew it was going to be okay. Well, basically, Sony, Sony and Warner's were chasing us. We went for a meeting, the three of us, because Curtis wasn't really involved at the time. And we went to a meeting with Sony Records in Sydney and... And he scared the fuck out of all three of us, Dennis Hanlon. He's a nice enough dude, but with all the music is sport and we need to decimate the, the fucking comp. All that sort of talk scared the fuck out of me. He scared Quan shit. But Quan didn't really know who he was at this stage. He was still finding out who he was with with all of his views and whatever. Ben wanted Ben always wanted to be on a on a on a major label. Or he just wanted to make music, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And um and then I went over to Warner's and I said, fucking Michael, you crazy fucker. <clears throat> what can you offer us? And they sweetened it up and I said, leave us the fuck alone, do what we want. And we did the deal. Brilliant. But, but, but all this sort of stuff, like I was, it was only me that wanted, that's, that, that's not true, man. I remember going to Quine's house and saying, hey, boys, this is the deal. Do you want to do it or not? I didn't really give a shit. I was going to go back to the US and... Uh, and they said to me, yeah, man, let's do it. So I, I went ahead and pursued 
pursued the deal. The beauty of these projects, given that people are remembering how things took place more than 25 years ago, is that often people's recollections of events vary. It's just part of the territory. Now, the Parisi that Martin just referred to, the fucking punk rock dude, was Michael Parisi, the Warner A&R rep who would in time sign Regurgitator. A veteran of the Australian industry and still overseeing an impressive roster of artists today with his management company, Michael Parisi Management, as well as numerous roles in publishing and consultancy and so forth, Back in the mid-90s, he'd been headhunted by Warner to address the lack of local roster, meaning he was signing bands during the alternative boom. Michael remembers it being an exciting time to be in A&R, as well as initially having his sights on the band that Ben fronted, Pangaea. You know, the scene, you know, the, the domestic scene was just coming, you know, coming into fruition, you know, after... Because you remember with, with major labels... They were signed very straight commercial, you know, rock and pop acts, you know, and the alternative scene, while it was there brewing, brewing underground, literally underground, it didn't quite, you know, take off in a more commercial way until, until the mid-90s. It was exciting. It was, um, it was an exciting time to be an A&R guy, that's for sure, because you could see the, the tide turning when it came to Australian music. It, wasn't, it was no longer about, you know, you're in excesses and you're hunters and collectors and, you know, you're, you're 1927s. You know, those kinds of acts, it was, you know, you, you could sense something exciting brewing, particularly in Brisbane, which I used to enjoy going up to to check out bands, you know, whether it was Pangaea or Early Powderfinger or Regurgitator, you know, it was always something, Jurastia, there's always something going on in Brisbane. Brisbane had this really cool, deep, dark underbelly, which excited me. And I literally would go there, you know, every weekend for months on end, just, just to check out music. And it was Pangaea that... Um originally sort of caught your attention? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it was. I saw Pangaea a few times. Um, and it just so happened that when Ben sent me the demos, for the, the new Pangaea stuff, on the, it was on the cassette, actually. One side was the Pangaea record. The other side was these regurgitated demos. And I had listened to it. I went, what is this? And I remember ringing Ben going, I love this more than Pangaea. <laughs> so... At the time, I, I go, well, can I sign both? And at the time, my boss said, look, let's just focus on one. And then if that works, then we can, you know, we can sign, sign the other. So which one do you want to sign? I said, I've got to sign this regurgitated band. It was just so fresh. You know, it was, um, it was demos for that first EP. You know, things like, tracks like Couldn't Do It. ended up you know um being on the hamburger ep which came out you know it was a second ep and it was yeah it was just uh, it blew my mind it was there was nothing quite like it at the time you know and then when you saw them live you know you had you know uh, a singer of you know vietnamese heritage the drummers of chinese heritage and you got this crazy hippie 
in Ben Eli, and it was like it was just it was something special there. It was like it had this magic about them, and um, just incredible life. You know, like when I when I first saw them live, I couldn't believe how how good they were, how accomplished they were. Such a young band, very very exciting times. Did you did you have to do a hard sell to the label, or were, if you said that you were signing something, was that pretty much it? Um, Mark Pope, who was my direct boss at the time, he you know, he he encouraged me to sign them. I don't think the company understood what they what they had at the time when we signed them. Because when I, I remember playing, couldn't do it, which is a really um, really cheap DIY video attached attached to it. I played it at the um, annual sales conference, and um, my boss at the time, Brian Harris, the chairman of the company, got up after I finished presenting it and he said, "Parisi, what was that piece of shit?" <laughs> and I was like, I, I, I sunk into the floor, as you can imagine. But, um, you know, I had the last laugh, you know, a year later when, you know, two playing went platinum and I, and I, um, I gave Brian a plaque. Ben remembers Michael's interest in Pangaea stretching back to before his role at Warner to when he was general manager Australia for US label Amago Records. While Paul recalls that the initial plan was for Pangaea to sign with Warner while he'd sign Regurgitator to his new label Valve and get a P&D or pressing and distribution deal with Warner, meaning that he'd do all the work except physically making the product and getting it into the shops, which the major label would handle. But as we already know, things didn't go that way. And again, there's some slightly differing recollections. Here's Ben. Pangaea supported Powderfinger at the Metropolis and Michael Parisi from Imago Records, who had, you know, Henry Rollins and Baby Animals and stuff like that on his label, came to see Powderfinger. And um, he's, he got there a bit early and saw us, and he didn't like Powderfinger, but he liked Pangaea. And he was like, oh, you guys are great. Oh, oh, you know, can I help you guys out? And he, and um, I kind of, you know, I kind of um, nurtured a relationship with him. I liked him. And he's a guy from Sydney who's from a record label. And I was like, wow. And he, he put us on a national support for the baby animals. And um, so I've, I'd kind of always had that friendship with him. And he always wanted to sign Pangaea, but then he went to Warner Brothers and he was like, I really want to sign Pangaea. But I was like, I can't, you know, Pangaea's not... Yeah, but he was going to. Cause he was going to, we did yeah. recordings at Red Zed, and I drove down to Sydney with the Pangaea record to finalise the deal. And then I said, oh, I want to do... I want to shift uh, Valve... Oh, no, I want to start a new label off the back of Velvet Urge and do a P&D deal with you, and here's the first release, Regurgitator. And then... That's when I came back and he goes, he left a message going, you've got a problem. I don't want to sign Pangaea anymore. I want to sign Regurgitator. You sort it out. That was a message he left on my answering machine. He goes, I've already told Ben, you figure it out. Yeah, because I remember, you and I remember this differently, but I remember maybe this happened as well, Laz, but I remember going to Sydney with a cassette tape uh, of some Pangaea recordings and I had Regurgitator on the other side. And that I remember- wasn't completed. But I remember giving it to him. No, it was his demos. He never heard it when I took it into him, Ben. I, I drove down and slept in the car on the oh, street. Oh, whatever. I remember, I remember yeah. sitting in the office listening to the tape with him, just me and, me and him. And Maybe then, it was a demo and I just, and, But I remember saying to him, I would prefer to sign Regurgitator because of, for many reasons, um, you know, I don't think that I had the confidence within myself to be a front man. 
I didn't have, I didn't think that my singing and my lyrics are that great. I think I could play, but then also playing live with that band and the technicality of it. It's kind of exhausting, like doing a gig like that and coming off stage, you just feel wrung out and it doesn't really feel fun. But after hanging out with Quan and and he would he would make cassette tapes for me that he would do all of himself. He had a pretty good work ethic. He would sit down in his basement, he'd play the drums, he'd play the bass, he'd play the guitar, he'd make a song and he'd give me the tape. And I was a big fan of what he was doing. I was a big fan of what he said. Like I thought his lyrics were really clever and a really cool um, uh, expression on where things were at. I think felt like he really cut through bullshit and said said it how it really was and had some cool things to say. So I kind of felt like it was a, you know, and because I was a big fan of his, I kind of enjoyed it and played in the band as a fan. So I felt like that band for me was one, it had a lot of reasons why I wanted to push that uh, to the major record company because, yeah, because a lot of things, because of my insecurity, because I was a fan of Quan's, because it was a fun thing to do, because he was a cool guy to hang out with and he was straight edge and didn't do drugs as well. Because a lot of people I knew were doing heroin and dying and people on acid and people on speed and, you know, uh, Brisbane at that time was pretty crazy. And here's this, you know interesting creative guy with a good work ethic playing great music who isn't fucked up (laughs) it was kind of like this is this is probably a good choice to walk down the road with this guy so now regurgitator is everyone's focus although it's worth noting that pangaea stayed a band and ended up on warner for an ep and album in 97 after which other members went on to success in bands like resin dogs and george and Warner is the place that's going to be releasing Regurgitator's music, a pretty sizable leap of faith for all involved. The first release was the self-titled Regurgitator EP, which was originally meant to come out independently, but was swept up in the Warner deal, and it came out in February 95, rising to number 45 on the Aria singles charts and spawning two singles in Couldn't Do It and Like It Like That. This was followed in August by the new EP, which will go to number 30 on the singles chart and also birthed two radio singles, Track One and Blubber Boy. Michael Parisi recalls the EPs getting immediate traction. I mean, I think, um, yeah, the word of mouth on, on Regurgitator was unbelievable. I mean, we, um, you know, we, I remember radio ringing us up, you know, asking for their, for their records. You know, Triple J were calling us, you know, when are you going to give us our new you know, Regurgitator single? And it just spread really quickly. And then their reputation as a, as a great live act, that spread really fast too. So it was going you know, in unison. You had, you, know, you had this you know, sheer word of mouth on a media radio level. At the same time, you had punters going, this band's amazing. And so the, the, you know, the, the, live, the live fan bases grew, you know, literally overnight. You know, they did, you know, I remember the first ever show in Sydney, I forget where it was, it was in Northern Beaches somewhere, and there was three people in the room. And then literally six months later, it was like the Metro. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was mental. It was nuts. The crucial creative control element of their contract, which basically means that the label can't interfere with the musical packaging, quickly came into play with Quan's penchant for subversive lyrics and imagery rearing its head early. 
I think we made a conscious decision to kind of write pop songs just to give it a go as well. I remember making that decision with Blubber Boy and with um, Sucked a Lot of Cock just to go, well, you know, we love the Beatles, but we don't want to be seen as like an everyday kind of pop band. So let's inject it with something unusual, subversive, try and get it on mainstream play, played in mainstream radios, but have this real like level of subversion in the lyrics that really would throw you if you really listen to the lyrics. A lot of it was like a, a weird kind of experiment to see actually how much people were actually paying attention, you know, and it was really interesting to see, you know, Blubber Boy getting played on M on Triple M and it had the word cunt in it and no one really noticed. Um, so yeah, that was that was part of the fun part of the experimentation of the band. I think. Hey. I'm your blubber boy, you should love me. Melted away, so bury me to me in my grave and mourn me. It can be the same, it's begging again. I'm your blubber boy, you should love me. I look like a love child in the sea, I'm fishing in the sun. I'm melted away. Did anyone pick that up? That used to blow my mind that it was on the radio. <laughs> I don't think anyone did. I don't think anyone did. I wasn't, it wasn't particularly clear, mind you, but it was definitely there. I mean, it was clearly about <laughs> a, a, an Inuit woman rubbing things on her vagina. I, did, I don't see how it couldn't have been picked up. But, yeah, this is the thing. They just hear a particular thing, put it in a particular box, and they don't think about it. And that really highlighted the way that these corporate entities work, you know, this kind of lack of deep understanding about what they're doing. They're just kind of going through the motions. And I thought I thought that we use that to our advantage to a lot of degree. And in a similar kind of way, um, the feeling that I had signing to Warner was the hope that I could, you know, slip something under the under the radar a little bit in that regard. But I was genuinely terrified at the time. I mean, Martin, I remember Martin being very excited about it. It was his dream. It, he, it was what he was working towards. He was very much more of a, a business person. Um, and, and also, you know, uh, because Ben had been working towards it. Through, I mean, he was very much more career driven as well. And he'd been doing the, doing the hours and putting the work in with Pangaea. And uh, really the connection he had with Michael Parisi and Pangaea um, really solidified our connection with uh, with Warner as well. Um, so that was kind of an obvious thing for him. Me, I was a little bit more on the sideline, just looking at it going, oh my God, what's happening? This is really weird. I don't know if I really want this, but I'll go along for the ride, even though it kind of went against a few of my core understandings of, of what I wanted to do with my life. Ben was writing great songs too, but it was Quan who seemed to be pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable more often. Ben and Paul saw Quan's lyrics as pretty much a natural extension of what had been happening in his pre-Gurge outfit back in the day. But you've got to take it back to Zurastia. So in Zurastia, the, the singer of that band, Vic, I don't know if you've seen that band, but she's like really quite an amazing performer and her lyrics were pretty intense, like pretty... You know, if if it were her lyrics to be rated, they'd be like triple, you know, R-rated plus. Like, you know, no, no one under 25 is allowed to hear these songs. Like, her lyrics were pretty, you know, pornographic and violent and pretty interesting stuff, the way she would phrase stuff. And I think Quan sort of picked up on her trip of pushing the envelope lyrically. So I think Quan had always, like, I think he kind of took that ball and ran with it. Um, with the band and I think that's what I liked about it uh, for the social co kind of commentary. Um, and, you know, we were kind of, you know, I mean, there was a pretty kind of tough scene, a lot of heavy bands, 
kind of wasn't cool. You know, like on our side of the river, it wasn't cool to be like custard and be pop. Pop was like a big no-no. Don't do that. Like you couldn't be seen to do pop music like in our circle. And then I remember we had a rehearsal at Red Zed's one Friday night when we used to rehearse there. And Quan came to me and he's like, I've written this song. And he said, it's a pop song. We're like, what? You wear a pop song? I was like, dude, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, we don't do that. And then he, we played it. I went, oh, I remember actually playing it in the rehearsal room. And I remember us all looking at each other and just kind of going, kind of freaked out because we liked it. We felt guilty for liking it because we weren't supposed to do it. And I remember we went outside and had a cigarette we're standing outside and we had this kind of conversation like, should we do this? Should we do it? And then Quan was like, oh, yeah, there's a swear word in there. You know, it was like, you know, rub me on your cunt, I'll come back again. You know, it's, it's about the Eskimo fairy tale that Quan would read. It was in an uh, Angela Carter book. Virago's book of um, fairy tales, yeah, this kind of weird fairy, and Quan would read in the, in the tour van. And she, she did feminist interpretations of... Um Fairy tales. Yeah. yeah. And so we kind of justified it, but we liked it. We kind of went, oh, wow, that it felt kind of cool. So, yeah, so it was from then we felt like we could do pop music. But, you know, I, I, I think Michael Parisi may have known that there was a swear word in there, but, you know, Triple M and the commercial rock radio stations were playing it unaware of the fact that it had a swear word in it. Yeah, Triple J didn't find out for quite a long time, actually. Yeah, so it kind of went under the radar. Quan explains that the anti-consumerism bent inherent in the cover art of the two EPs, both riffing on the theme of music as a product, with new even including a used-by date, which was August 19, 1995, the EP's release date, was a reflection of his slight unease at working amidst the corporate machine. One of the key... um fascinations i've had with humanity and just the way you live in the world is this level of hypocrisy that everyone has to live with right and there are lots of good people out there everyone is good generally or they justify their the way that they live in the world somehow to themselves but there's there's always a level of hypocrisy there's always things you want to do better but you just can't because it's too difficult or you don't have the money to do it or this family pressure or this society pressure so that has always fascinated me and it always been a, a key part of my lyricism and my the way that I, I exist within the industry as well. Um, and I, I recognize that in myself, obviously. And um, that whole consumerism and the whole commentary about consumerism throughout the, the band's history is a part of that, me dealing with the hypocrisy within myself. So far, so good. But when it came time to look towards their debut album, Regurgitator would prove that given full reign and complete creative control, it is perhaps possible to push the envelope a tad too far. In February of 96, they released the first single from their debut album, FSO, or Fuck Shit Off, an anti-domestic violence song showing that there was and is a serious core to the band. But with physical products still ruling the roost, the one and a half minute song was buried on the actual CD single amidst 18 minutes of static and feedback with no heads up given to the punters, few of whom made it to the actual song, as Paul and Ben explain. Yeah, it was kind of like this complicated negotiation because of all these different kind of situations. And, I mean, you know, we ended up with this really amazing deal 
where there was like this freedom to do this shit. And like they had to take what they were given. They had to take the singles, the images, the press releases. They, they had to like, they couldn't try. I mean, they did try to. I mean, they got freaked out about FSO because these guys had done this amazing thing where they'd sandwiched the song itself in the middle of like 20 odd minutes of noise. And then they were like, oh, we can't release that. And then the cover was white with a black silhouette of a house because the song is essentially like pulling apart domestic violence. And they were like, we can't release this. Like, no name on the cover. You know, and Kwan's like, no, it's what I want. So I had to, like, play middleman and go, okay, we have to put Regurgitator super tiny inside the house. And then you have to put, like, an index point at the start of FSO in the middle of the noise so that, you know, people can jump to the song if they want to play it. But, I mean, there was resistance like that. Yeah, but then, you know, we sold 20,000 copies but got 18,000 returns the next day or something. So it was kind of like people were like, you guys are dickheads. I I always say this about Mark and Michael. Um, They worked from the outside out. So... There was no demos. They didn't intrude. They sure that Michael turned up to recordings, but they didn't intrude. They didn't try to tell the band to be something they weren't. They didn't. They didn't try to manipulate it mm. so it was so there was less risk relative to commercial outcome. But maybe that's also because it follows on the back end of like the whole grunge period and how that reshaped what was possible in a commercial kind of arena, you know, because before that it was all like SST and all underground shit, right? Like it wasn't till then when they, till you got a strong interest from like major labels for like stuff that was more, you know, uh, independent, uh, alternative, sorry for, and you know, and that's when you get that whole alternative genre kind of period unfold. Here's the single version of FSO with just a few seconds of the noise left on either side for context. of humour and subversion to mask serious topics and conversations rises up again and again throughout the regurgitated canon. 
Ben, for instance, is about to explain the genesis of the track 7 foot 10 from the new EP, a reflection in a way of both the time and the place. I think Quan's really clever lyrically and um, cheeky and just, yeah, kind of, kind of, you know, saying how it is in a funny way kind of thing as Lo- well. Loaded with self-deprecation. Which so, is very 90s. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, there was a lot of 90s postmodernism to the whole thing. Like, but also not taking it seriously. None of us took it fucking serious. I don't think they, I mean, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I don't know. I don't yeah, know, but I then mean, again, some of it's kind of serious, you know, like we had a show at the Metro in Sydney and Quan caught a bus uh, before we did the new album, after we did the Hamburger album. We had a show at the Metro and it was like pretty dude heavy. A lot of dudes there. I remember Quan getting on a bus and I think there was a gay guy on the bus and there was these big footballer kind of dudes, like jock dudes, teasing this gay guy and they were wearing regurgitator T-shirts. So, you know, I mean, and Quan wrote 7 foot 10 about imagining he was bigger than these guys and sexually harassing the guys that sexually harass. Because we'll get the point. Don't be late. This is a regular appointment. Just some suggestion. Answer the question. kind of serious heavy kind of imagery that's this kind of fantasy but still rooted in reality this kind of retaliatory kind of you know I'm gonna fucking get you because you're a prick you know kind of attitude about it you know so i guess it's not all totally jovial yeah but know? even then it's kind of like it's dark material but presented in this kind of black humorous kind of manner i mean which is again postmodernist kind of thing um I mean, yeah, I'm not saying suggesting there wasn't serious subject matter dealt with. There certainly was. Yeah. I mean, right from the beginning, sure. there was this kind of anti-discrimination thing. I mean, you couldn't avoid it for a start because obviously that was kind of around the commencement of the whole Pauline Hansen kind of uh, racist stuff that was coming out. And here is, a, I suppose, I, I mean, I never really thought of it at the time because I didn't really think of that manner. But then again, of course, you have to because... Racism is essentially systemic, you know. It's not an act. It's not an event. It's something that just underlies our culture. So here you are with a band with one member from Chinese heritage and one member from Vietnamese heritage, right smack bang in the period where there's an, there's this whole growth of the kind of racist sort of uh, political shit that Pauline Hansen was just down the road from us in Ipswich, you know. I mean... It's kind of weird. I mean, like, Quan's mum found out that my father's American as well. And she was a little bit cagey on me at start. She was like, oh, you letting that American guy come around? Because, you know, she escaped from Hanoi during the Vietnam War and she kind of just did not like American culture or Americans 
So it was kind of a little bit weird that we were friends, but her mum was kind of a bit, you know, that guy's that guy's kind of like the enemy in some ways. But uh, yeah, that was kind of weird. And Michael Prezi, he was completely aware of what was going on with stuff like Blubber Boy and completely down with it. Were you aware of things like the, you know, Blubber Boy and that, you know, how it's got pretty vulgar language through the, yeah. the lyrics? And the, were you, you were aware of that and just let it go to radio and everything? And- of course. I remember when um, they they gave me um, a demo for FSO <laughs> and it was basically 17 minutes of white noise and a two-minute pop song in the middle of it. And they thought I was going to freak out. I said, this is brilliant. Let's put it out. <laughs> and I was kind of like, what? I said, let's put it out. It's, it's amazing. Let's put out the whole version, the 17-minute version. We'll, we'll take the two-minute version to radio, but let's release the 17-minute white, white noise version. And they were kind of like scratching their heads going, are you sure? And I went, yeah. It kind of like you use a bit of reverse psychology on them. That makes sense. Um, but I thought I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was a genius idea. You know, because they're always pushing the boundaries, those guys. And and why not? You know, why you want to put out, you know, a single with 17 minutes of white noise? Sure, let's do it. I'm not gonna stop you. I love stuff like that. It, it extended to the packaging and everything, didn't they? They were yeah, sort yeah, of vaguely subversive on every level. Oh, the packaging, you know, the, the artwork, you know, their, their, their videos, you know, they're all very clever. And it all came from them. You know, they, they were the ones who, you know, they had the vision and they had the, you know, the creative smarts to, you know, to do all that stuff. You know, like were there's posters or, 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 you know, single art or album art or, you know, remixes, you know, all their videos that they made were brilliant. This intersection of different worlds and philosophies was sailing along pretty well, despite slight reservations from both sides as it seems the Warner hierarchy were all too aware of Paul's inherent anti-corporate bend. We would go down to have meetings at Warner Brothers and sit there and Paul... Paul no, no, no. Was, like, no, no, it was just... It was, it was actually the final... Like, I went to the meetings, but it was that final meeting that was so amazing where we had the big round table and Mark Pope was there and Michael Parisi and everyone was talking and it, all you guys were there. And I just didn't say a word for... It must have been like half an hour. I just... I yes. just decided not to speak. I tend to speak too much, as you're probably noticing. Um, and I just sat there and just didn't say a word and just listened. must have been like easily 20 minutes, half an hour or something yeah. before Mark Pope turns around and says, so what does Paul have to say about this since he hates record companies so much? You know, like, and I, yeah, I, I, I remember like, that being really awkward. And I just said, well, no, actually, I, I, I didn't know. I just took it in my stride and I said, oh, look, uh, you know, I don't necessarily hate record companies, but I just see them for what they are, that your only motivation for existence is to generate profit, and that's really what it comes down to, and it's about the relationship you forge. Probably not as articulate as maybe I voiced it just then, but it pretty well laid out. You're a company. You exist sure. for one thing, profit, end of story. Sure, but, but I felt Michael Parisi was a very big music fan and he was a friend. And he, he genuinely loved music, like he was a fan of music. And I think he he understood it, but I don't think a lot of people who, a lot of other people who worked in Warner's got what we were trying to do in our first EPs. He got and a lot I of resistance there. He got a lot of resistance, but Martin was very clever with our first couple EPs where he had a kind of work ethic where, you know, they were offering us big budgets to go to big studios in Melbourne and Sydney. And Martin said, no. Let's just record it for as little as we can in Brisbane, get our own gear, do it at Red Zeds, just try and keep the budget as small as possible. So we recorded those EPs for not much. This love of pushing buttons even extended into the live realm. 
Quan often donning dresses or lingerie as he hurled around the stage during Regurgitator's incendiary live shows. I don't know what actually triggered that initially, but I can tell you I did I, I did get a kind of view of what it's what it might be like to be a woman, like a very small hint of it. I mean, the amount of sexual harassment I actually received while I was wearing dresses was quite remarkable. I mean, I was clearly a guy just dressed in a dress, but you would get a lot of these kind of harassment type things. I remember seeing something that shocked me uh, the most was going to the Australian Open one year. I think, it, I don't know what it was. I think I went with Janet from Spiderbait when we were going out. So it would have been like late 90s or mid 90s. And um, we went and saw Kafelnikov play and and then... I can't remember her name. There was a there was a, a tennis star, a female tennis star. Was she was in the top fifty or top twenty even, and she was obviously she had this provocative style, the way that she was promoted, and she was you know sexualized to a certain degree in the promotion and so forth. And she seemed to be okay with it. I don't really know, but the we're dealing with. She, I just remember being surprised that. She had this level of professionalism, athleticism. She was clearly a professional. She could play tennis like a fucking demon. And yet uh, the amount of sexual abuse that was coming from the crowd was just astonishing to me. Like that someone at that level of professionality was suffering that was just amazing to me. I could not believe it. And I think, you know, I would see that everywhere. And and Janet was a huge influence. I mean, she was a staunch feminist, still is, I'm sure. Um, and she really affected my understanding of, of what it meant to be a woman in the industry we were in. And I really felt for her and understood a lot, a lot of what women would, were going through at that time and still go through now, obviously. Yeah, I was going to say 25 years later, that still hasn't been resolved, sadly. I mean, you know, it is amazing. You, you, I was just thinking about when, you were, when we were talking about my time in, in – um, when I mentioned the time in South America and all the geopolitics, nothing much has changed. I mean, if anything, it's just gotten worse. You know, everyone's still in this kind of disaster economics. It's still the biggest transfer of wealth from the third world to the to the richest people in the world over this COVID period ever. You know, nothing seems to be changing. This inequality just seems to be you know, entrenched in our systems. It's kind of nuts. Regurgitated by now have set the perfect platform to attack what would become Two Playing, their debut album. The Regurgitate EP had even been nominated for Best Adult Alternative Album at the 95 Arias, losing out to UMI's Hi-Fi Way, in what you have to admit is a pretty fair call. But from Warner's perspective, they were just going to keep letting the band do their thing, as Michael explains. I mean, even though they've been in other bands and stuff, it, it feels like, and it, well, it, it looked like at the time, they were an overnight success. But, you know, those boys have been playing in bands for years. Yeah. Um, you know, playing their trade and stuff and... Um, it just, yeah, just I think the combination of, of all three of them coming from different backgrounds, it just just clicked. It's one of those things that you know you can't really explain. You know, it wasn't we weren't sitting there you know, putting together long-winded ten-page marketing plans. It was basically, you know, this is a great band, write incredible music, very different. You know, just put them in front of people. That was the marketing plan, as far as I was concerned. With a you know, your role is to close a deal basically. And then once you close a deal, then you work out what kind of record you're going to make and, you know, then the creative hat comes on. But prior to that, yeah, there's a lot of negotiation, you know, back and, back and forth. But we, we, gave, we, we gave that band, you know, pretty much full reign. You know, I, I remember saying to um, my team or the team that were around me, you know, if it ain't broke, why try and fix it? These guys don't need a &R. They know exactly what they're doing. Let's just trust them. 
And that's how I kind of work with them, let them do their own thing because there was nothing for me to fucking fix. There's nothing broken. It was incredible. It was like, it was like, like, like nothing else. And why would I get in the way of the creative process when, you know, those boys I trusted implicitly with, with their vision? I mean, some acts, you know, require A&R. You know, they want, they want your opinion on, on songs and mixes and all that kind of stuff. And I always gave my opinion. Um, but in terms of the actual creative process, you know, I like giving my, my acts free reign. It makes, it makes for a better relationship for starters and it makes for better records. You know, if I felt they're going the wrong way, you know, there were times with other bands I've worked with where I felt that, you know, they're probably going down the wrong path and, you know, I've tried to straighten them up every now and then. But I don't, I'm not one of those A&R guys who, you know, clamors all over the band and, you know, and stifles them. You know, I, I, I prefer that they, you know, it's their, it's, their, it's their band, it's their vision, and I, I, I trust them. Like they use the machine to make their record. They were still very, very, very alternative and, and underground and particularly, you know, listen to their songs, you know, um, particularly two playing. I mean, there's some crackers on there. I mean, they, you know, like Mark Pope would say, they're the cheekiest band in Australia right now. And he was, and he was probably right. You know, they got away with a lot, that, that band, because they were really good. Really good at what they did, what they still do. Ben mentioned earlier how Martin had insisted on not spending the EP advances on the recordings as they were recoupable, and this had saved the band a lot of coin. For the debut album, however, Martin came up with another plan to save money, not by staying in Brisbane, but by going somewhere even cheaper, Southeast Asia. Even recording the records, they were really unplanned too. We basically didn't go in with any songs. It, it was just an exciting band, an exciting period, and it was it, it was exhilarating for all of us until the shit hit the fan, if you know what I mean. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's. But even the first album, we knew, and I knew because Quinn and Ben and Quan weren't really into what we're going to do, how we were going to do it, and all that sort of stuff. So I sort of took the reins on that and. Um, and I'd been in Southeast Asia, and I thought, fuck, we're not doing anything else normal. Why should we do this normally? So, and contractually, we could do whatever we wanted. So, fuck, I said, let's go to Southeast Asia somewhere. And um, we did, and it, it worked. So, Regurgitator are off to Bangkok, and what an adventure they're about to embark on. We'll end episode one of the two playing story there. But there's one more character to introduce before the team head overseas, one integral to this tale. These days, Lachlan Magoo Gould is Dr Gould, university lecturer in contemporary music, fated for a long and storied production career which saw him win two arias and work with bands like Midnight Oil, Spiderbait, Custard, Jebediah, Shehad, Screamfeeder, Front End Loader and dozens more. But 25 years ago, he was just setting out in his career, and even though he'd recorded both Regurgitator EPs, most of his time at this stage was spent doing live sound for some pretty successful Brisbane bands. This decision would prove a sliding door moment, as Magoo explains. I was mixing full-time for the Dream Killers, and then I, I did that for two and a half years, and then I did a year of Powderfinger, and then... The crunch time for me was actually two playing uh, because I was kind of juggling live sound and uh, studio work and I kind of had a nice balance. But when it came to two playing, I remember there was a tour with Powderfinger, I think it was like with Sidewinder and Fur or something like that. It was kind of like another trip around the country, like I was doing them just all the time. 
Um, or it was, do you want to go to Bangkok and make a Regurgitator's debut album? And it was like, oh, I'm sorry, Powderfinger. I think I've, I'm going to go to Bangkok and make this album. So, yeah, it was a pretty uh, pinnacle time for me. Was, I always wanted to be in the studio and the live sound thing, uh, as much as I enjoyed it. I also think spending a year with Powderfinger on the road was enough for me to go, mm, I don't think my liver's really going to be able to take this live thing, you know. It's really hard to not get wrapped up in the whole sort of show, rider, party, uh, you know, sleep, repeat. So I, I quite liked the studio thing. Please join us for parts two and three of this look at the 25th anniversary of Regurgitator's debut album, Two Playing. Once they get to the badlands of Bangkok, this story really hits its straps. But before they'd left, they'd recorded a couple of songs in Brisbane, so they'd have lead-in singles, the first being FSO, which we heard before, and the second being Kung Fu Sing, Kwan's Ode to Courting Via Fortune Cookies, which was released as a single in April 1996 and will go to number 33, as well as being ranked number 15 in Triple J's Hottest 100 that year. Here it is.
Thanks again for checking out the first part of Rewind's Look Back at Two Playing. Don't forget to check out the next couple of instalments. We'll catch you then. Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Trewick and Andrew Marks. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.